This is Rohit Bhargava, author of Non-Obvious Megatrends, How to See What Others Miss and Predict the Future, and you are listening to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com. Marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com, and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Rohit Bargava, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. How's your health and, and that of your family? It is, uh, it is very good. We are doing quite well, and uh, I am enjoying a cocktail right here with you. So it's uh, even better right now. Yes. And one day I hope we'll be able to uh, have cocktails uh, IRL, as they say, as the kids say in real life. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure if we've, we've done that before, you know, so this may be a a bucket list thing. Yes. And uh, you are in, uh, let me guess, you're in the Oakton, Virginia area. That is correct. Yeah. And for people who have never heard of that, it's uh, no problem. It's about a half hour outside of DC. And isn't it near the uh, Air and Space Museum in, in D, uh, outside DC? It's sort of in between. So there's uh, so people who've been here, they know there's two Air and Space Museums, right? There's one in downtown DC, and then there's one out near Dulles Airport, which is the kind of airplane hangar. And we're in between DC and Dulles Airport, way out where the other Air, Air and Space Museum is. Great. So in your show notes at Marketing Book Cocktails. I'll show a map of your house and then I'll have directions there from the air and space, you know, just <laughs> so that, uh, you know, I'll be sure to up, uh, I'll be sure to up my surveillance. Before that's that right. Happens. And well, he'll, he'll, you can bring a <laughs> table out front and, and sell some more books. So Rohit, when you were last on the marketing book podcast, I introduced you. So let's turn the tables here uh, and, uh, please remind listeners who you are and what you do and what you've authored. Yeah, so I uh, I've done uh, several books, but my big thing right now and my big message I think is that I believe now more than ever the world needs more non-obvious thinkers, people who don't see the same thing everyone else does, who don't read the same thing, who don't come to the same conclusions, just people who who really are able to take on different perspectives, have more empathy, and and just see the world in various ways instead of being closed-minded. And so that's what I try and put out in the world through books and talks and and everything I do. It's all about being non-obvious. That's the brand. That's kind of what I'm living right now or trying to at least. Right. And you're also a book publisher. I am indeed. Yeah. So I got really frustrated as an author with uh, mainstream publishers. And so about four years ago, I started my own publishing company called Idea Press. And we've been taking on just independent authors who want 
everything that a, a traditional publisher would have given them in terms of distribution and high quality printing and amazing people to work with in terms of editors and designers, but doing it uh, as a small independent publisher. And it's been really successful. It's been, been an awesome experience. That is so great to hear. And I had had some authors who were published by Idea Press over the years. And then one year I happened to notice that one of your books, I was interviewing you about one of your uh, annual guides for the non-obvious trends. And it was from Idea Press. And I thought, oh, he's with that, uh, that same publishing company. And then like a year later, I realized, oh, that's the company that Rohit owns. So I'm a, I'm a slow learner, Rohit, and I appreciate you not, you know, rubbing that you know, in. It, it, not to take away from your slow learning, which I'm sure is true, uh, but <laughs> I've also uh, been, you know, Idea Press is, is one of the beautiful things is as a as an author and a professional speaker, you get used to having all eyes on you. And I think that what's been beautiful for me about Idea Press is I can be very much behind the scenes. And so there are a lot of people who don't know that I'm behind Idea Press. It's not mentioned on my website. And and the reason for that is because it isn't about me. I mean, we bring together all these amazing people who are from the industry and we tried to create something really unique and really different. And, and I'm loving the fact that that it's not the Rohit show. You know, it's about <laughs> something else. Well, tell us about the non-obvious guides, because that's relatively new, isn't it? It is, yeah, and and the non obvious. I think there's a, if there's a theme to what I have done as an entrepreneur, it's uh, get really frustrated by stuff and then start something that that flies in the face of it. And that's what I did with Idea Press, and, and to some degree, that's what inspired the non obvious guides. It was just my frustration at trying to learn how to do various things in business, especially when I became an entrepreneur about five years ago. Before that, I spent many years at Ogilvy and Leo Burnett as a, as a corporate employee. I mean, I wasn't an entrepreneur. So when I started my entrepreneurial journey, a big deal for me was figuring out what to do. And I was looking for advice and I was looking for advice through books. And all I could find were these dummies guides and idiots guides. And I mean, they suck. They all suck. Uh, and the reason they suck is because they're written like dictionaries. You know, they're, I mean, I, no joke. I picked up one for digital marketing and there were four pages defining what the internet is. I mean, how stupid do they think your the readers are that they need four pages to tell them what the internet is? Well, that's where I but first like, learned what it is, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, well, they had a technical description of it, right? Which is totally <laughs> useless. But yeah, like, no, you know, the problem with that, the problem with that, I think is, that uh, that we get these guides that are so-called Bibles about whatever the topic is, and it's 400 pages long, and it's totally useless. And so the non-obvious guides were my response to that, my my attempt to find the smartest people on the topics that people care most about who were true experts, and then have them write a book as if they were sitting down and having coffee with you for an hour. Like and what having coffee you? with an expert. That's the tagline. Yeah. And and that's intentional, right? Because that's the way they're written. And, and on the back of each one of these guides, it says smart advice for smart people. Because I think that we're in this moment in time where like we generally feel like we can figure stuff out. We're smart people. You know, we watch a YouTube video, we can figure stuff out. But we still need advice and we need it from experts who are generous and who know what they're doing and who aren't just putting out bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed you about... It was uh, marketing for small businesses who have a limited uh, budget. 
Hang on, I'm torturing yep. the title here. Small business marketing. <laughs> Let me open it up here. I'm sorry, I apologize. Here, I'll tell it to you. You don't have to open it. A, <laughs> I'm only talking to the author guide. here. So yeah, much, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so much the for preparation. Guide through small business marketing without a big budget. That was the official title. That's right. And I thought a small business guide to marketing without a, a big budget. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a small universe of companies there. You know, uh, I mean, most small <laughs> businesses have just lavish. Uh, you know, uh, budgets. So that was a uh, very interesting. It was a very fast read. And what I liked about it, probably even more than the person that was trying to get up to speed on that is the way you presented it. In other words, you could have done a thousand page book, but instead, uh, you, you put in just the things that somebody needs to get a, a really solid foundation. And, and I don't know that you mentioned this in your book, but it would keep somebody from hemorrhaging a lot of money when they hire their first consultant or whatever, or, or firm or something like that to help them with their marketing. Yeah, really. I mean, if there's one big point that I tried to get across in that book, it was uh, spend more time on the strategy and not so much time on the tactics. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's easy to say, but the analogy that I would typically use is I would say, look, imagine if you had a restaurant, if you did uh, think about your strategy, like you wouldn't come up with a chicken strategy for your restaurant. Like you, that's just one of the things you serve. You would instead come up with like, how do I create an experience? How do I deal with now this whole pandemic? And like, what do I do next? Like, that's what you would be thinking about. And yet when it comes to digital marketing, a lot of times we're like, okay, I need a Facebook strategy. I need a TikTok strategy. I need an Instagram <laughs> strategy. And you're like, that's stupid. Because like what you're doing ultimately is coming up with chicken strategies as if you were a restaurant and like, that's not the way to think about marketing. And and so that's kind of what I wanted to put out there. And I said, look, you're never as a small business, you're never going to be able to afford an Ogilvy strategist, right? Whoever that person is who's sitting in that strategy group, who's coming up with this deep strategy. But if you could take some of that thinking and apply it in the small business context, it would be hugely useful because you could do something to totally differentiate yourself. Agreed. And it's nearly not just for small businesses, because I th- I run into a lot of executives who maybe they just become a CEO or they came up through engineering and now they've added marketing to their to their job list. That's a book that you could give them to read on a flight to get them to, I think, understand some of the larger concepts and not b- in terms of what's actually important and what is uh you know, sort of a, a race to the bottom in terms of wasting time and and money and chasing metrics that aren't terribly meaningful. Yeah, I think I mean that is the, is the intent of it. And and one of the more surprising audiences that I sort of found for this was professors who were teaching in MBA programs who were saying, look, this guide is perfect to explain to an executive, like, what is it that marketing does? Like, what's the difference between marketing and sales? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is positioning? What is branding? Like, what are these things? But not in a Here's your definition. Webster's Dictionary defines branding as, you know, like, who cares? Right. I mean, that's not the point, right? Like, show me a logo and say, like, the, I mean, my simplest definition of a brand is, like, it's a story that you tell that allows you to charge more for the exact same thing. Like, it's <laughs> a reason why Coca-Cola can charge more than cola, right? Because there's a brand there. And yep. that's, like, wouldn't you want to charge more for the same thing? Of course you would. So that's why you need a brand. Yes. And I think that a lot of consultants, agencies, people... Uh, marketing folks uh, overcomplicate the whole branding issue too, and I um, that's that's why I'm I'm concerned often about I get so many books on branding, and a lot of them seem to take the notion that, or they they have the idea that they can still control what's said about their company, 
whereas most of what's said about a company is not said by uh, that company. So, Rowit, can you can we go back just a brief minute here and explain this uh, these non obvious trends how it how it got started and uh, what what that's led to. Yeah, so people who are maybe unfamiliar with this whole non-obvious pie of stuff, um, yeah, I mentioned that it's a brand, it's a way of thinking, which is kind of how I th- I feel about it, but it's got some very specific things that we do to bring it to life. So for example, one of them is the guides, which you mentioned. I've written one of them, but there's many others that have been written by many other authors. So we've got five in market right now. Uh, I just launched a new one, which we're going to talk about um, at a later point. And uh, there's another six in development. So there's a ton of these guides and they're meant to take on the dummies guides. That's one piece of this kind of non-obvious pie. A second piece is we do an annual book awards program, which is the most interesting and fascinating books of the year. And we award those for nonfiction titles. And that's been really popular. So that's out there. The third piece, which is kind of where the non-obvious brand started, was for the last 10 years, I was publishing this annual trend report. And and your longtime listeners probably know it well because I've been on a couple times talking about it. <laughs> yes, I should, I should interject that uh, for several years, Rohit was the first guest every year on the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the book that was titled for that year. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and 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 it was crazy. I mean, my author friends would come to me and say, "Look, you're rewriting a version of the same book every year, and then printing it and putting it out there and trying to forecast the demand and you know warehousing the old versions because, like, guess what? In 2020, nobody wants tw- non-obvious 2016. Uh, so, like, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you do that? And for a long time, like, it totally made sense because it was driving a lot of the business. I was doing a ton of keynote speaking. I still am doing a lot of that though virtually now." Because everybody wants to know what the trends are. But as you know, this past year with the Megatrends book, uh, that was the last edition of it. It was the 10-year anniversary. So it was the final time that I'm doing it. And part of the reason was because I wanted to take this brand of non-obvious, which I mentioned as multiple pieces, and make it bigger than just this one book. Mm-hmm. I would argue that if they said it was the same book each year, they didn't read the book because each one was different. Um <laughs> So you know that's what my wife says too. When I say I'm the author of six books, she goes, "No, you need to count every edition of Non-Obvious as a different book." Uh, so you're the author of like twelve books. Yes, as <laughs> I said, well, well as I don't the, feel right about that. <laughs> as well as the toll on your uh, life and marriage and family life. <laughs> I remember yeah, that's, that's right. It's a lot of work for sure. <laughs> Tom Martin, who wrote the Invisible Sale, after I interviewed him a couple of years ago, he and he's working on some other books too. I said, hey, Tom, are there any other books? And he says, oh, it's funny you should ask. I was at a cocktail party recently. My wife was there, and someone said to my wife, is, uh, is Tom, uh, what's Tom's next book going to be about? And his wife said, I don't know. Ask his next wife. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's funny. <laughs> so I know that you're laughing to keep from crying. Uh, but um, so that that came out each year, and uh, what was what was interesting, uh, so many interesting things about it is that you explain the difference between a trend and a fad each year, and that you simply you are curating uh, trends, and then you write about the ones that seem to be picking up velocity each year, and uh, maybe it'd be helpful here as we are sort of towards the middle of the year to remind folks between the the difference between a trend and a fad. Sure. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, to be, to be totally accurate, I think what I do is I curate stories 
And eventually I turn those stories into an elevated idea, which I describe as a trend. So it's sort of, to me, it's, it's a bit similar uh, to collecting the ingredients, flour, eggs, sugar, uh, to make a cake but you still have to make the cake. Like you can't just look at those things on a shelf and say, Hey, check that out. There's my cake. Like it's not a cake yet. You still have to turn it into something. And I think when people think about trends, one of the terms that they, they use is trend spotting, uh, which I think is a huge myth. There's no such thing as trend spotting. Uh, there's idea spotting, which is great. I mean, idea spotting is awesome because you're always looking for ideas. Story spotting. Yeah, totally. But trend spotting doesn't exist because that'd be like, uh, like calling those ingredients a cake. You have to turn it into a cake. And so a lot of what I think about and what I talk about with trends is how do you elevate the thinking to say that this story happening over here in this industry is related to this other story happening over here in this industry. And therefore, all of these things together point to something that's a trend. And the way that it's different from a fad, to me, is a fad describes usually like a single thing, a single platform. Uh, when people say, oh, TikTok, that's such a trend. Uh, it's not a trend. It's just a platform that exists. Uh, 3D printing, not a trend. It's a thing. It's a technology. Mm -hmm. A trend has to be somehow related to the behavior that these things enable. That's what makes it a trend instead of just a fad. Right. You used to joke and say, uh, be careful at the beginning of the year when people are talking about the new trends for the year 2020 or 2021. Look and see what they're selling. So if it's somebody who says, this is the year of the drone, well, they may be selling drones or some sort of drone uh, drone equipment. Yep. But uh, yep. these non-obvious guides, uh, you've got them, like we said, small business marketing. They're on, uh, I'm looking at some of them right now, event planning, employee engagement, uh, being more creative, uh, memorable presentations, um, understanding data and statistics, traveling for work, which uh, I don't know, it, those may drop off a bit uh, in the near future, that particular book. But talk a bit about what I think is one of your newer ones, virtual meetings and remote work when you just can't be there in person. It's like you knew this was coming, this whole pandemic. <laughs> you know, I, I wish that I uh, could say that, uh, especially as a guy who talks about the future. But in reality, uh, this book was really a fast response to the new world that we were living in. And it's sort of a, uh, in itself, it's sort of a case study for what I try and teach people, which is if you become really good at putting these stories together and seeing trends and seeing the future, you don't actually predict the future. What you do is you understand what is happening that most people aren't paying enough attention to, and then you double down on it. So it's as if you could see what something was going to be before anyone else saw it, then you could be more profitable and be more successful because you saw it before anyone else. But you're not actually predicting the future in the sense of like time travel, right? You're essentially looking at something that's happening and you're saying, oh, this is going to be a big deal. I need to get on this. And that's kind of what this book was. The Non-Obvious Guide to Virtual Meetings and Remote Work was a response to two things. First of all, the pandemic and the fact that we all need to work remotely and present virtually and, and listen virtually and engage people that way. But the other piece of it was that many of the books that you see out there on this topic, on virtual meetings, on virtual teams, on remote work, they're kind of in this category of digital nomad trainer material in the sense of 
they're all advocating, hey, you could work remotely. You don't need to go into the office. Skip the commute. Live on an island. Like, you know, live your best life. And I think we're in a moment now where we're working that way because we have to. And so the the subtitle of this and the, and the subtitle of a lot of these guides is very interesting because it gives it that little twist. And so this is the non-obvious guide to virtual meetings and remote work. But the subtitle is when you just can't be there in person. And I think to me, what that says is, of course, we'd want to be there in person. Yes. But we can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so let's lean into that just a bit more. And let me ask what what has uh, changed in in your world specifically? I know you're a, an adjunct professor at Georgetown. Uh, you travel. Uh, I think last time I checked, you've spoken in 34 countries. What what has changed, and what do you think is possibly going to become the new normal? And uh, what what's ahead, particularly for folks that are in uh, marketing and sales? Well, I think that uh, there's there's a couple things. One is we will get much more intentional about the travel that we do, and so whereas before. I think that the barrier had kind of become lower and lower for, Oh, I'll just jump on a plane and I'll go and do that meeting. Like I'll, I'll go to that event, like especially in marketing and sales. Cause it was all in service of we're trying to close the deal. Of course, we'll just jump on the plane and go. And now I think that people are going to think twice about that. Do I really need to do that? Is that really, uh, are they really expecting me to, uh, is now, do, Rohit, do you think that's in? because people are are going to be afraid to travel for a while or because they're suddenly learning how much they can get done without having to be there in person? Both, I think. Uh, I think that, that one of the biggest crises that I see all of us facing is this battle between essential and non-essential, as in, are we even essential? Like, is the work that I do essential? In the sense of like, does it have to happen? And in marketing specifically, I think that one of the things that has been really concerning in the industry, and that's already started to happen even before the pandemic, is you had huge brands like P&G saying, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising. Like, What happens if we cut that budget in half or if we only spend 20% of it? And what they found in some cases is they didn't have any sales drop off at all. Now, I, I heard some sales went up right? actually. Right? Yeah, sales went. And so, like, as soon as you get big brands spending that much money saying, look, if we don't spend that money and we still sell the same amount, why are we even spending it in the first place? <laughs> right. uh, that is really scary for anybody who's working in marketing. And if I was still in the agency world, that would be absolutely terrifying for me, too. Um, and so, I think that the only way, I mean, the obvious question is, well, what do I do about that? Right. I mean, I don't want to be irrelevant. Of course, we don't. So to me, the only way you can respond to that is by looking at fast disruption and preparing yourself mentally to the point where you don't panic when that happens. Because I think a lot of times what has happened for people and what continues to happen is people panic. And when you panic, you don't make good decisions. And we all know that. And so instead of panicking, if you find that you can help yourself be ready to adjust, be more flexible, be more apt to embrace that disruption, to use a cliche, instead of panicking, you're going to do better. And the big thing that I try and teach with this non-obvious perspective is what sort of person looks at everything changing and says, okay, well, if I can't go that way, I'll go this way, right? If that road's closed, 
uh, I've got another way to go. And some people call it resilience. Some people call it just adaptability. Uh, but whatever your word is that you use for it, I think that that's a skill set. And I think that it doesn't just naturally happen. Like we've got to build that. And how does somebody go about uh, building that? Because this is a great time to strengthen those muscles. Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so there's there's a couple things that help, really help me do that. Um, one is I don't become uh, myopic with my industry focus. So what I mean by that is I don't just focus on my industry and forget about everything else. And I think the perfect example of this is anytime I go to an event where I share an idea and somebody who works in B2B immediately will come and say, yeah, but that seems like a B2C idea and I work in B2B. Uh, and and I think that that not to single out B2B marketers, but but I think that what that indicates, that way of thinking is that we look at anything that doesn't seem relevant to us and we dismiss it. Instead of looking at something that doesn't seem relevant to us and saying, hmm, what can I learn from that that I could apply that would be maybe just a piece of it, but that I could apply that would make me smarter, that would give me an idea that nobody else is having. And I think that that is the mentality that we're all going to need moving forward. This idea to say, look, just because I'm not interested in that or because it's tailored to somebody else doesn't mean I can't find any value in it. I mean, when's the last time you read a magazine that was uh, written for the opposite gender? Well, I'd prefer not to answer that question, but um, <laughs> no, that's... I do that all the time. And it's not well, because I'm interested in it, right? It's I, I haven't been lately, but I, I do um, enjoy looking at but Cosmo, whenever I've, I've happened to have, I don't know why I would have gotten hold of one, but um, that's actually, that brings to mind all these uh, Rohit memories are coming back. And, and we have, like I said, we haven't met in person, but you, you've occupied a large uh, section of my mental hard drive. And that is you talk about, go read magazines. Talk about that where you read a magazine that, or, or you, you've gone to trade shows and you've really done a deep dive into to uh, what a particular industry is doing? Yeah, I think, uh, I think first of all, the nature of what I do, uh, it, it, I'm really fortunate in the sense that I meet people from different industries and I'm conversing with them all the time. And I have opportunities to do deep dives for short periods of time in their industries in a way that most people don't. So for example, uh, like six months ago, I did a talk for uh, a big company that, uh, a big diamond company. And as part of the preparation for that, I went to a training that they offered to a jewelry store on how to sell engagement rings. So I went to a 90 minute training on how engagement rings are sold. Now, unfortunately for me, that happened way after I needed it, but I learned all of the different techniques that are used for something like that. Now, but you did pick up something nice for your wife though, while you were there. Right? <laughs> I did. Yeah. At the actual show, it was great. Cause we, uh, slight aside, they had a trade show where they were selling all of these uh, pieces of jewelry with diamonds to the jewelers who would buy them at the jeweler rate and then mark them up. And I found a buddy who was a jeweler in Florida and he took me around the trade show and he said, look, that piece right there, I'm going to buy it for 800 bucks in my store. I'd sell it for 5,000. And this piece right here, uh, you know, and so he was kind of explaining that whole thing to me. And uh, we happened to have turned that into a family trip. And so I texted my wife and I said, um, uh, hey, would you like I a diamond ring? Here. Would you like to get something? Um, 
And I've I've never seen her show up somewhere so fast. I, mean, she was, <laughs> I don't even know where she seems like she was right outside because she was there like in five minutes and she picked something nice for herself. And it was uh, yeah, it was a it was a fun experience. So, you know, it's, it's nice you know, to, to hear like it's nice to hear about a husband who occasionally gets it right. Um, but <laughs> does this mean there's now uh, in addition to the non obvious guides, there's the non obvious uh, jewelry that. Uh, <laughs> You're going to yeah, start jewelry line. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we should do that, you know, but the, the interesting thing about like an experience like that is, is for uh, a week, I'm deep diving into that industry. Mm-hmm. After that, I don't really work in that industry anymore, but I keep the knowledge, you know, it's sort of like that. Uh, I don't remember what that movie was. Like there was some movie where Mel Gibson was like a cowboy and he would like spin the gun on his finger and like do all these gun tricks. Right. And like for the next 20 years after that, Mel Gibson knows how to spin a gun on his finger. Oh, the actor. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. The the actor. Yeah. And, and I think that it, part of it is like that. Like once you get this deep dive into this industry, like you don't forget because it's so uh, you're so invested in that period of time. And I think that to, to get back to your point about, you know, the magazines and, and seeing things from different perspectives and seeing things from other places to me, the fact that I've been able to, I mean, that one experience at that jewelry show, multiply that by 50 every year. And that's what I get to do. Hmm. So I'm really lucky that way because I have all these experiences and all these industries that allow me to say, well, this is happening over here and that's happening over there. And, and I would put that into the book every year in terms of the trends that I would share because I had all these insights and all these moments in time where I could go into all these different industries. So most people don't get that opportunity, but what we all can do is take ourselves out of our world, out of our industry, out of what we're interested in and pick up a magazine that's for somebody else. We can all do that. Yes. And the other thing about the uh, my experience as a reader reading your, your trends books over time was analogous to my children who are now in their 20s. I don't think they're growing anymore, but physically growing. <laughs> but when they were growing up, I was with them every day. I didn't notice they were growing up, but then I'd go visit a relative or see somebody who hadn't seen the kids for a year and they'd say, wow, they've really grown. And so as I was reading through your books and you would talk about these different trends, I would think to myself, oh, I I have heard about that, but I hadn't noticed how much traction it was getting. So uh, there you go. Rowan, what kind of questions are you getting from your friends and and clients and, and, and other authors about how this uh, pandemic is affecting them. Well, I think the biggest one I get is uh, related to the idea that I published a book about macro trends and the future three months before a pandemic hit <laughs> and everything changed. And so the biggest question that I'm getting around that is, well, these trends that you predicted, like, are they still correct? I mean, <laughs> or, or has everything changed? Mm. And Generally, what I say is, uh, look, some of them have have maybe faded a little bit more into the background, but the ones that that I wrote about that were accelerating have, it, to some degree, accelerated even faster. Oh, and wow. what's funny is something that I saw. So here's an example, right? So two years ago, I wrote about uh, something called ghost kitchens that were popping up, and ghost kitchens or ghost restaurants, as some people were calling them, and what they were were uh, these um, containers or small buildings that were just kitchens where they would make the food and then a delivery service like DoorDash would show up, pick up the food and bring it to your house. And they had no restaurant area at all. So they were kitchen only restaurants. 
And that was a thing. And they were called ghost kitchens or ghost restaurants. And now that we can't go to restaurants because of the pandemic, many regular restaurants have converted into that. But that was already happening ahead of time. It just wasn't happening that much. So what I started to pay attention to, and I actually wrote a whole uh, blog post about that, which you can link to in the uh, in the show notes. But it was these futuristic ideas that seemed far off but are now becoming mainstream because of the pandemic. So distance learning, for example, like we had distance learning for 10 plus years, but it was always kind of a segment. And now everybody, everybody's kids are distance learning. We had esports and people watching streaming esports. That was just a small, small ish group. And now it's people watching esports for FIFA because they converted their whole season to premier league on FIFA right. on the Xbox. Right? And I noticed so, NASCAR did that. NASCAR did that too. <laughs> NFL started doing that with NFL players playing one another uh, on, on uh, video games. So it's normalizing these things that perhaps would have still happened, but taken much longer to become mainstream. And now they're becoming mainstream. I mean, uh, I remember first reading about Twitch, I don't know, like two, three years ago. And I would read that. And as an older guy who has kids who were on Twitch, I would think who would sit there for two hours watching someone else play a video game? on a live stream. And -hmm. now that's totally mainstream. Like they were sitting here watching uh, NFL players play against each other in a video game. And like, that's on network TV. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. I think uh, there's also some skill in uh, playing video games because years ago, my son tried to get me, he was trying to show me how to play one of those first person shooter games about world war two. I don't know what it was called. Um, Very popular. Uh, Medal of Honor, Call of Duty. Or, Call of Duty yes, thank you. And he'd be embarrassed that I can't remember. And I was getting killed like within three or four or five seconds every single time. <laughs> so I couldn't. I just couldn't get the hang of it. Now and I'm playing Fortnite with my kids, and uh, and I'm I'm dying very quickly on our squad. I'm, oh I'm wow! Value for them. I feel better now. But I could imagine watching someone play uh, Call of Duty. Just because it's like um, me watching someone play basketball, knowing just how difficult it is, or, or soccer, or baseball, or football, whatever, you know, having played them, <laughs> I just think, mm-hmm. wow, I, I can appreciate that. So um, that's, you know, that's interesting. And we're all looking for some sort of, um, at least I am, anything but the news. I, I, I've stopped watching any television news and uh, am only trying to consume it. Uh, online. And I recently spoke with Joey Coleman and he was talking about how another little trick that he uses is try to read, like if you're in the United States, try to read half of your news from foreign uh, sources, which I think is also, um, you know, very helpful in this uh, era of unlimited, uh, (laughs) unlimited media. So Rohit, your book, Virtual Meetings and Remote Work, when you just can't be there in person, I would love to interview you in a, not that this isn't a real interview, but a proper interview on the Marketing Book Podcast, because I think it's what the listeners would really appreciate. So I hope that I can get you on the calendar really soon. And Absolutely. I'm sure we can. Then you are the one and only member of the Marketing Book Podcast Five Timers Club. And there is one member of the Marketing Book Podcast Six-Timers Club, and that's Mark Schaefer. And that would very quickly get it tied at six. So, And I, and I spoke to Mark Schaefer recently, nice. and he's recovering from coronavirus. He and his wife had it. And uh, 
he said it's real important that he's the he's out front uh, on these um, you know as the uh, one and only member of the Six Timers Club. So I think it's important that uh, I get your help in keeping him hungry. You know, keeping him, keeping him <laughs> honest. I don't know if you if you've ever met him, but uh, he's, uh, he's he's. I haven't met him. I know him though. We do we do know each other, and uh, and I'm glad glad he's recovering for sure for for one, and uh, and I'm happy to keep uh, let him know or I'll let him know that I'm happy to keep the, our healthy competition going. Well, as I said to him. Mark, the wolf is at the door. Okay. So, you know, just don't forget that. He goes, yeah, I've written eight books, but I've only been on your show six times. I said, well, I got to keep you hungry, Mark. <laughs> oh, I, I know I sound like I'm drunk with power. I'm just a knuckleheaded podcaster in one little corner of the marketing podcast world. So, hey, you know what? Take the, uh, take the power where you can get it. And by the way, you're on your show. So, you know, claim the authority because that's, right. um, that's what uh, people expect. Yeah. Well, what do you think? When do you think you're going to be back on the road? Do you have any sense for that? I think that probably this summer I will do something, uh, but I think that when it comes to events, my belief is that what's going to happen much more often is you're going to have every event be a hybrid event where there's a virtual component and a live component. And people will essentially choose depending on which experience they're more comfortable with. Perhaps a local group comes to the live thing uh, and stays socially distanced in some way. There's other people who can participate virtually. There's multiple ticket prices for that. I think that that's what we're going to start to see. And so as a speaker, I've been spending a lot of time creating a different experience for what that virtual talk is, because you can't just take a 45-minute keynote and translate it into doing it on camera and expect it to be good. And so uh, a big part of what I'm trying to do is say, First of all, what does that virtual presenting look like? How is that format more interactive? What does it mean when you're right in somebody's face to engage them and have it be more conversational? And the the other piece of that is how do you take what would have been a one-talk gig as a speaking gig as a professional speaker and instead sell a engagement package that says to someone who's engaging you, look, we might do that live event later this year or maybe early next year because the bigger events tend to book a year in advance, right? Or, or more. Uh, but leading up to that, you're going to need to engage your audience. And so what can I create as part of this package to show you that I'm a partner and not just a speaker who's going to do his 45-minute talk and, and slap it up on video and be done? Mm-hmm. It seems like that's one more thing that's going to accelerate so much change and actually make things better because there are so many ways that you can engage people uh, without actually having to uh, be there. Although being there would be, uh, you know, in person is, is a great part of that. But there seems like there's a long tail before and after something like that that benefits the attendee as well as the, the person presenting. There can be. I think that you have to be willing to uh, let some things go. And I think that the more speaking someone has done uh, and the more uh, they've they've practiced and gotten good at it the harder it is to let some of those things go i mean it would be as if you went to a stand-up comedian who has been doing some jokes for years and knows that they're funny and knows that they resonate and saying to that comedian look you can't do those jokes anymore because they don't work Hmm. and it's really hard in that sense to rethink that and i think that to some degree we may the, the newer speakers who aren't as as set in what they present may have an advantage unless the speakers who've been doing it for a while are able to totally rethink what they're doing. And that's what I'm trying to do. Mm, that's interesting. And it reminds me of marketers and salespeople 
not all of them, but there are certainly a large, uh, I want to say a generation of marketers that are really, that have had great difficulty adjusting to the changing way that people buy and the fact that we don't really have a captive audience anymore. And it's, uh, some people refer to them as press release marketers and they don't have so much of a, a new bag of tricks. And the same you could argue with sales folks who are used to people, prospects coming to them when they're first starting out on their information acquisition to towards buying something. Whereas you can find some younger marketers and salespeople or people, or not necessarily younger, but new, people new to that who sort of accept the way it is and haven't picked up a lot of baggage and are able to jump in uh, to the new world without um, the burden of what they've already learned. Yeah, I think that uh, there is something to be said for uh, this idea that the less set in your ways you are, the more quickly you could adapt. Now, in theory, that is true, but but there are plenty of people who haven't been doing things for that long and are still set in their ways. So I think that that it is a mindset and it is this, this idea that, yeah, things are changing and yeah, everything's getting disrupted, but instead of letting that defeat me or having that be something that gives me an excuse to say, well, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to give up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to keep launching new things. We have to keep trying. We have to keep doing things differently as everything moves. I mean, just one example of that is I've been doing these virtual talks and I just did a, a, a post about what I learned doing 15 of these virtual talks over three weeks. And one of the things that I saw is the talks that I gave first are very different from a camera setup, from a sound setup, from a whole uh, uh, point of view of, of the experience than they were even two weeks ago. Right. And even as we're doing this now, like I have a single camera set up with a microphone, but now I'm going to add a second camera. I'm going to have different lighting. And so like in another week or another two weeks, it'll be totally unrecognizable from what it was. So that's how fast you have to be willing to try and move. And if you can do that, then I think you'll be able to adjust faster than somebody who doesn't do that. Right. And these blogs you're talking about, they are at rohitbargava.com. Is that right? They are. Uh, there's a blog there, uh, or you can go and find me on LinkedIn, and they're generally posted as LinkedIn articles as well. Okay. Well, I want to drive traffic back to the main uh, source here for you. I'm I'm looking at them now, and I see. And what we'll do is we'll include links to this and everything else you've mentioned at this episode show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com, and get people armed up and go from there. Are there any other? Books in your future, not necessarily the non-obvious ones, but uh, maybe a successor to your uh, non-obvious Megatrends book that came out at the end of last year? Not at the moment. <laughs> I think that uh, I have, uh, I mean, I wrote, it was a little insane. I mean, I spent most of last year writing that book. I launched it in January. Then this whole thing happened. I spent uh, four intense weeks writing this not new non-obvious guide to virtual meetings, which just came out. So that's two books in the span of, of three and a half months. Uh, so I think I need to take a book writing break. I think you've earned it. And I'm not just saying that because your wife has been messaging me during this interview, asking uh, me to encourage you to you know kind of slow down, but don't stop going to those diamond shows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if she could encourage anything, I think that'd probably be. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> That's right. Well, listen, Rowett, I really appreciate the, uh, time you spent with us here on authors in quarantine getting cocktails and i appreciate all the 
the thinking and the writing you're doing. And I hope that you and uh, your wife and your boys continue to stay uh, safe and healthy and reasonably sane. You too.